Hello and welcome, and thank you for joining. I'm your host, Seth Haskin. I started this podcast to dive deeper into the ways we know one another and God. The goal is to ask the question, how God loves. I invite people from many walks of life to join me on this adventure. We have to bring God into our three-dimensional world to understand him better, but also understand that we won't fully know him, and thus he's in the fourth dimension. I would like to welcome our guest today. She is the co-department chair of the biology, uh, biology department at Bethel University and an ecologist, uh, a woman with a strong voice, strong smile, <laughs> and she's always going to make you laugh at least once in the conversation. Um, welcome, Dr. Amy Dykstra. Well, thank you, Seth. Um, thank you for that compliment about my strong smile. And uh, I do appreciate humor. So, yeah, it's good to be here. I appreciate that you're doing this podcast, and I r- love the idea of the fourth dimension. Yeah. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I always start with where I grew up. I grew up on a farm slash ranch in uh, western Nebraska. We had we raised wheat as our main cash crop, and then we had cattle, beef cattle. And so I grew up loving to spend a lot of time outdoors, um, climbing trees or whatever. I played a lot of sports when I was growing up, um, starting out with playing softball from when I was eight years old, and uh, basketball, track, cross country when I was in high school. And uh, also when I was growing up, you could, if you didn't find me outside playing, you would probably find me with a book. So I read a lot. And um, grew up in a, a, a nominally Christian home. We went to a mainline church. Um, my dad, by the time I was in high school, was uh, an agnostic. He is now a professed atheist. My mom um, is uh, is a Christian, and so there's a little bit of, I don't know, maybe tension in our family over um, that. I consider myself to be a Christian. I was involved in uh, youth group activities and um went through the, the um, confirmation um, mm-hmm. classes and, and stuff uh, as like middle school, high school age. Um, but it wasn't really until I went to college that, my, that I made a, a personal commitment to Christ. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's nice to hear a little testimony, you know, about your professors that you probably haven't heard before. So, um, yeah, raising wheat yep. must have been a lot of yellow fields. Yep. Amber waves of grain, they say. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least they look prettier than corn. <laughs> well, I think uh, corn has its own beauty. Uh, we did have a lot of corn. Nebraska is the corn husker state, although in far western Nebraska, it's very dry. And so all of the wheat or uh, the wheat was primarily a dry land crop Mm -hmm. so not irrigated the corn had to be irrigated and uh, we raised corn also to feed our cattle we would chop it into silage Mm -hmm. and feed the cattle so yeah it's good stuff and i'm guessing that's where you got your interest for ecology then 
Well, I think so, yeah. I think, like I said, I always was interested in being outside. So, but I'm interested in all areas of biology. I find mm-hmm. biology just really fascinating. I think cell structure and function is amazing. Um, just all these little tiny machines inside cells and what they do uh, without really having a brain and how DNA works and um, and also at the organismal level, I love to think about how plants and animals function and um, that's one of the main classes that I teach is either introduction to organismal biology, mm-hmm. plant and animal form and function, or um, integrative biology, metabolism, energy, and biodiversity, which kind of spans all the way from cells to the ecosystem. When I went to, uh, well, so I got a degree in biology um, and didn't know really how I was going to use that. And I kind of thought that there were maybe three different options. Um, One, I could be a research scientist. Two, I could go to medical school and be a doctor. Three, I could teach. And I think there are a lot more options than that that I now know about. But at the time, those were kind of the only three options that I really understood. And I didn't think I wanted to spend my life in a lab. Mm -hmm. And I also thought that um, being a teacher might be less time demanding than being a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. And so I went the direction of um, being a teacher. And I know now that teaching uh, takes all the time that you have available and more. <laughs> it, uh, the, the teaching just expands to fill any available time that you have. So I don't know that it's less demanding time-wise than a medical career would be. Um, but I discovered that that is really a perfect place for me being a teacher. Um, my It just lines up pretty well, I think, with my skills and God-given talents, and also I like being the center of attention. Uh, <laughs> I like being at the front of a classroom. Nothing and, wrong with that. Um, so that it kind of feeds my ego, I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how I chose ecology, so to just continue the story, um, I uh, so I taught high school sciences, primarily biology, for a couple of years, and then um, I wanted to get a master's degree, and I wasn't really interested in getting a master's degree in education. I wanted it to be more disciplinary-based, more science-based, and the area of biology that I realized I was weak in was plants, and Mm -hmm. so I decided to do a master's degree in botany, and that's when I discovered how amazing plants are. They Mm -hmm. are just really amazing, and... um, So I focused on plants for my master's degree, and then I taught high school for another decade or so. And um, then I got a position teaching at a small college and knew that I needed to get a PhD if Mm -hmm. I was going to continue in higher ed. And um, so I went to a plant biological sciences program at the University of Minnesota, which seemed like kind of the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. And I ended up teaching... or choosing a more ecologically focused project because I like being outdoors. Mm -hmm. And again, I didn't really want to spend my summers in the lab. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's been really cool. 
Yeah. And I'm guessing I've done some research about you and you're part of this Echinacea project. Yeah. And I'm guessing you spent a lot of time outdoors doing that kind of work. I did. I spent a lot of time out in the tall grass prairies of um, West Double Central. Double socked, duct taped, no ticks getting anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the ticks... Uh, the ticks are bothersome at first, but what's really annoying is the chiggers. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of hard to keep the chiggers from getting into your clothing. So, kind of helps to wear rubber boots with your socks tucked in and then not get down on your knees. Um, but it's kind of hard to do the research that I was doing without getting on my knees. I was studying echinacea seedlings. So, echinacea is a purple cone flower, it's a native. Uh, prairie plant and um, I had the opportunity of joining the echinacea project my advisor at the University of Minnesota Ruth Shaw um, is a co-principal investigator on the echinacea project and we are interested in how the fragmentation of the prairies the prairies have um, have been converted largely into agriculture mm-hmm. agriculture so if you go to the prairie biome in Minnesota, mostly what you will see is cornfields and soybean fields, and you won't see a lot of native prairie. So we're interested in how the native plant populations are surviving or how well they're doing with their limited habitat that they have available. Mm-hmm. There are still little prairie fragments, which are like corners of fields that were too rocky or too difficult for a tractor to get to to plow up, mm-hmm. or roadsides, or railroad rights of way, um, and there are a few prairie preserves. And so we're studying echinacea pro- um, populations. And I was particularly interested, and still am, in um, the seedling stage, and that was kind of the part of their life cycle that we hadn't studied very well. And so I spent a lot of time, and a lot of people who helped me with my research spent a lot of time on our um, either squatting down or on our hands and knees looking for tiny little echinacea seedlings and then tracking them year to year to see if they were surviving. So also interested in, I'm actually more trained as a population geneticist or evolutionary biologist than I am as an ecologist. So interested in how the how echinacea and other species change over time in response to natural selection or just chance events that happen in their genomes. So interesting. It's, it's very important work. Uh, native plants in America have kind of gone on this and like close to getting endangered because of a lot of agriculture. And when uh, Americas were getting cultivated by the Europeans, they brought over their grass. And so a lot yep. of the native grasses have kind of just been weeded out so it's very interesting to like think about because isn't bluegrass that's native to here um yeah so you might well you might be thinking of well kentucky bluegrass probably native to kentucky yeah (laughs) um so what we use in our lawns a lot um Mm -hmm. the tall grass prairie has um, several other species of grass you might have heard of um, big blue stem andropogon girardii it's a fun one to say that's the Latin name of big blue oh. stem. <laughs> big, That's big why I haven't stem. heard it. Um, there's little blue stem. There's side oats grandma. There's um, Indian grass. Um, there's porcupine grass. There's a variety of different grasses. So yeah. and grass is so great. Like it's grass one is of, awesome. I I think it's 
so overlooked by so many people, but it does so much for everything. You know, provides structure for soil, um, provides a lot of uh, oxygen, uh, carbon dioxide. Um, you know, like the smaller plants, a lot of people overlook like um, for that type of stuff. But it's very important, and grass is just a good uh, usage, and it could. Uh, theoretically be the new paper products of the future instead of cutting down trees and stuff. So Yeah, absolutely. Yep. yep. Um, and bambooza grass, and yes. it's one of the fastest growing land plants. Yes. Um, seaweed is the next one, and that one is being used for a lot of things now already. Yeah, so, so if we can figure out a cost-effective way to do, to make ethanol from cellulose, mm-hmm. then, uh, yeah, bamboo and switchgrass mm-hmm. um, are a couple of couple of possible options yeah definitely so love that conversation uh <laughs> plants are, are very interesting and now there's a new movement um for a lot of people my age they have pet plants oh like there's a whole bunch you know like the house plants that were kind of no longer existent in houses anymore and now i'm seeing more and more in my generation yeah do a you have a people. pet plant i personally do not have a pet plant but my brother um, don't like to use the word obsessed, but he, he's a little, um, <laughs> plant fanatic. Um, he has a list of plants that he wants. He has an app, um, for the plants that he like, it's like, oh, I want that. And he clicks on it. Oh, so he'll wow. put it on a wish list. So he'll do that. And he is like, oh, I already have that plant. So I don't want to buy that one. I want to buy all these different plants. So our house right now is full of like a variety of plants. And then he has an app to know when to water them. So there's a lot of new technology coming in for wow. people to become, green thumbs in their own houses. So it's very interesting because the whole gardening aspect of life yeah. has kind of gone away yeah. after like victory gardens from World War II and stuff. So, yes. um, and the industrialization of food. So, but besides plants, um, we also talk about on this podcast relationships, Yes. Um, any type of relationship. Um, so my first question that I usually ask everyone is what comes to mind when you hear the word relationship? Yeah, so um, I think the word relationship is kind of squishy. I think Mm -hmm. we use the word relationship for a lot of different things. So as a scientist, I might ask my students, what is the relationship between two variables in a graph? Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just kind of thinking about, I knew this question was coming, um, and I was kind of thinking about, relationships and I wondered does the Bible even have that word and so I looked in my Strong's exhaustive concordance of the King James Bible and no it's not even in the Bible Um, the Bible does talk about different relationships like friendships Mm -hmm. uh, family relationships but it doesn't actually use that word at least the King James doesn't Um, Maybe I'm avoiding the question, what do I think of when I think of relationships? <laughs> okay. I probably think of different people in my life, mm-hmm. um, um, different kinds of relationships maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like you said at the beginning, many different kinds of relationships. Yeah. Just like connecting points. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's usually my starting question, just to yeah. get a feel of where people are at. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, know that there are many different ways to think about this question. Yes. So um, my next question for you is what comes to mind um, when you envision relationships with others 
And how does that affect your day-to-day interactions? Mm -hmm. So, like, do you categorize your relationships? Do you have different levels of relationships? That kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I would guess that we all have different levels of relationships, whether or not we think about it. Um, I I think of relationships as being, as being kind of concentric circles. So there are a few people that are right in that inner circle. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I would put my husband in there and then, you know, some very close friends. And then you have farther out circles um, where you have other people. Um, And then, of course, there are work relationships, which sort of blend into friendships. Mm -hmm. And Spend um, a lot of our time at work, so I would hope so. Yeah, absolutely. And I really do enjoy the people that I work with. That's Mm -hmm. one of the greatest things about Bethel is that there are great people here. Um, But I have had... I've had interactions with a lot of great people through my life. I've, um, I've just been blessed in that way. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that that's to- totally what I'm looking for. It's just okay. like how you envision, you know, different relationships in relation to one another with yeah. relationships. Yeah. <laughs> Whole bunch of uh, relationship stuff. So, um, you have mentioned, um, the oh what was it it was when we were talking about the echinacea project i can't remember um oh uh we were talking about the really uh the uh native species yes um and how they are surviving with a lot of their land being taken up by agriculture yes um can you describe that a little bit more and use like relationship to one another plant wise oh yeah so um no species exists all by itself. There are tons of relationships. I'm really glad that you asked that question. I never even thought of relationships between organisms as part of this podcast. But of course, that's about that's what ecology is all mm-hmm. about. The word ecology comes from a Greek word oikos, which means house. Um, and it's, it's where we live. But ecology is all about interactions between organisms. Um, so I'm really, <clears throat> excuse me, really glad you brought that up. So the, I was just reading an article recently about um, a mutualistic relationship. Oh, now, can I remember this? Like a mutualism inside a mutualism. I can't I can't think of the specific example. That's Sorry okay. about that. But if we go to if we just think about echinacea, so echinacea, um, it interacts with organisms in the soil. And mm-hmm. as far as I know, there hasn't been a lot of research done about organisms within the soil. But I'll start just from the soil and move up. We know that we often find aphids on echinacea. The aphids are often tended by ants. So the aphids. Um, have piercing mouth parts, and they feed on the sugar in the phloem, in the vascular tissue of the plant. And the ants get their nutrition from the aphids, but the ants also kind of tend the aphids, Mm -hmm. and they keep other things from attacking their aphids. So if you find ants on a plant, you're probably also going to find aphids. 
Then there are, of course, the pollinators as we move up the plant and get to the flowering head. Echinacea is pollinated not by a specific pollinator that has a specific relationship with echinacea, but by many nonspecific pollinators, bees, wasps, um, lots of actually solitary bees. Um, We will occasionally see a honeybee on echinacea, but not very often. We'll see bumblebees. We'll see um, a couple different kinds of solitary bees. One tiny aspect of our project has been to try to understand how far the pollinators will fly. So to try to understand if these populations of echinacea are separated from each other, um, can they still exchange genes by sharing Mm -hmm. pollen with uh, another prairie remnant down the road? Um, It's actually kind of hard to do that work because it's hard to track how far a bee will fly. (laughs) (laughs) We've, uh, you know, done things where we've caught them and put a little drop of paint on them. And then if you find it again and find that drop of paint, you know how far it's gone. Um, uh, and then in addition to pollinators, there, there are organisms that feed on the seeds. So there are birds that feed on the seeds. When we study the echinacea, we will sometimes find, um, um, excrement from caterpillars. Mm -hmm. We will, um, often find herbivory damage. So rabbits or deer or other, um, or insects, you know, beetles, will feed on them. You might find spiders living there, feeding on uh, whatever whatever insects happen to be hanging around. There is a type of wasp that lays its eggs in the echinacea heads, Hmm. and so um, we will sometimes find those. So there's just all kinds of relationships between organisms. and I didn't even mention the fungi that would be down in the soil that are often communicating between different individual plants. And I left that out because I don't think anybody really knows what's going on with echinacea root systems. Mm-hmm. But they do have a tap root. They do live for um, probably a couple of decades, individual plants. And so they probably have lots of interactions with soil organisms, bacteria, fungi, who knows what. And what does that look like when you remove one or more of those relationships, and how does that affect the plant? Yeah, so if, I, I mean, those, those um, consequences would depend on what you actually remove. Mm-hmm. I would say in general, in ecological communities, the more pieces that you remove, the less resilient the overall community is to change. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that happens in habitat fragmentation is that the native populations get smaller because there's just less pop- less um, habitat for them. Mm-hmm. And when a population is small, it can tend to get genetically inbred, which can cause some uh, decrease in fitness. And so you can get into kind of a downward spiral. Mm -hmm. So habitat loss is one of the biggest things that is threatening survival of species worldwide, including in the prairies. It's um, we only have less than one half of one percent of the native tall grass prairie is still Mm -hmm. remaining. So it's it's definitely um, a problem. One aspect that I've been involved in with my research is trying to understand 
the population persistence. Is echinacea, are the numbers of echinacea staying level or are they declining? And based on the research that we've done in our area, it looks like echinacea populations are declining. It's hard for some people to believe that because it's a relatively common prairie plant. But um, when we track the survival year to year and how many um, seedlings are being produced and whether they're living long enough to reproduce, um, if we kind of add up all of that data, it uh, our best estimates are that the populations are declining in a slow, they're in a slow decline. So that's kind of a roundabout answer. But yeah, relationships in ecology are super important. And along that line to sort of um, bring it back into like human relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been reading this book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, and she's a Native American who is also a botanist. So she's trained in botany, but she kind of went back to her Native American roots and is trying to understand um, from her Native American cultural knowledge, how that also plays into how plants mm-hmm. work. And um, in a recent chapter that I read, I've got the book here. I'm going to try to find it. Um, she talks about um, how she loves her garden, and she, and she talks about nurturing her garden. And then she talks about how the earth loves her back. And when she gets produce out of her garden, she sees that or she experiences that as the earth loving her back. Mm -hmm. And she talks about um, asking her students at a university um, in an ecology class Mm -hmm. about whether they think the earth loves them. And there was a lot of silence and people were kind of afraid to say something and then she said well what would it look like if the earth did love you back Mm -hmm. and then they got really animated and talked about that so i'm um, somewhat uncomfortable with the idea of the earth being able to love me Mm -hmm. so i find that a little bit animistic and i'm um, somewhat uncomfortable with that but then i started wondering about um whether there's any animistic language in the Bible. And, you know, if you think about when Jesus, somebody somebody told Jesus to quiet down the crowds, and he said, well, if, if we quiet the crowds, the rocks are going to sing out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we have language in the Psalms about the trees waving their arms or whatever. I, I didn't, and clapping their hands. And clapping their hands. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't really have time to look up some of... Um, I started trying to do that this morning, but I just didn't have time. <laughs> but I've been, I've been sort of thinking about it over the last few days. Um, I just find it a little bit intriguing. Um, and I'm maybe going to get a little ahead of you, but... No, go ahead. Um, I know in... I, I listened to your first couple of podcasts in this series, mm-hmm. and you said a couple of times that you find thinking about relating with God, you find God to be really intangible. Mm-hmm. And I do too. That's um, like one of my biggest complaints to God. God, <laughs> I just don't understand how I can have a relationship with you because you're so intangible to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
so I just find it kind of intriguing to think about, well, maybe one way I could experience God's love for me is through his provision for me. And maybe that's through kind of the bounty of the earth. I haven't mm-hmm. ever really thought about that before. It's kind of a new thought. Um, I do experience God's love for me in as I experience love from people in my life. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's what makes God tangible to me, and that is one of the things that keeps me a Christian is my interactions with other believers. Mm-hmm. That's when it seems real to me. Yeah, definitely, and that's something we've talked about on the show for a while now is God's so intangible. How can we um, bring him here and make him a little bit more tangible? And I think not only relationships with people, but relationships with the gifts that he's given us, such as, you know, nature. Yeah. There are so many things that we can look at in nature and be like, goodness gracious, you know, this is giving like us life. Yeah. Like the way we eat food, the way we um, can interact with nature, yeah. you know, and it's just study of our home, you know. Yes. Um, I think it's so important to understand all those things. And yeah. I could go off on a tangent about how we need to understand where our food comes from um, <laughs> in yes. America, especially yes. because could. that detachment from um, where our food comes from makes us not appreciate it as much. Yeah. And it gives us this very high consumption ideal. Oh, when it yeah. comes to food. And so yeah. a lot of food waste and whatnot. But um, oh, yeah. we'll not go into that because that's a whole nother yeah, uh, that's a, monster itself. That'd be a big tangent. That would be a big, <laughs> big tangent. But, but sustainability that, is super important. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, um, that I feel strongly about as a Christian is that we have, is that one of the jobs that God gave us is to... Um, Steward the earth. earth. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that word. Yeah. Um, And so it's it's really our job not to exploit the resources of the earth, but to steward them, to conserve them for future generations. I think that's a I think that's important in being obedient to God. And also, I think it's a super important way to love our neighbor. So um, if if we don't conserve our resources, if we don't take care of the environment now, what are we leaving to our our children or our mm, future generations? Mm-hmm. And aren't they our neighbors too? Yeah. I mean, I just uh, looked up the, the definition of steward here, and it's a person who looks after the passengers on a ship, aircraft, or train and brings them meals. Ah. So if we think about the earth as this transportation device, Yes. And we're supposed to be stewards. That means we're supposed to be taking care of not only the passengers on the earth, which are future generations as well. Yeah. But we're also supposed to take care of the vehicle itself as well. Yes, yes, that's right. So um, I think it's so important. And those are intertwined. If you don't take care of the vehicle, (laughs) the plane will crash and everybody will die, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So... Um, when you were talking about um, uh, God being intangible and stuff, um, my next question kind of leads into that, which is how do you envision God? What does he look like to you? And I know you said he's intangible, but could you expound on that a little bit more? Yeah, I guess when I picture, I'm a very visual person, so Mm -hmm. I kind of need to to have a picture Mm -hmm. of anything I'm trying to imagine. And so 
when I think of God, I think I have um, typically thought of him as kind of sitting on a throne up mm-hmm. there, up in the sky. And I, I don't think that's very good theology. So I think um, he's right here. And again, he's very intangible um, in this space. Um, so yeah, I don't have a I don't have an alternative picture. I just kind of know that my picture is wrong. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> so maybe that's something I need to work on a little bit. That's totally fine. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I asked the question is because if we have a picture of God in our heads and we never talk about how He looks like to us with others, then how are we ever going to know that there are different ways to think about God? Yeah, good point. You know, yeah. um, so... Or sometimes even know what we're thinking. Exactly. Until we say it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I heard a quote. I don't know if I've said it on the show already or, uh, or not, but um, there's an educational science YouTube channel called Vsauce. Um, Michael Stevens is the original creator, um, and he did a YouTube premium show called Mindfield. And one of the first episodes, if not, I think it is the first episode. It was about isolation. And um, it was just about like he isolated himself for three days. No, Mm. nothing around. No people, nothing. The light was always on, you know, just like a whole bunch of variables and so on Mm. and so forth. Um, And he thought he could do it and be fine. And he was talking to the camera because that's all he had was in there. It was the one couple of cameras and that he could talk to. Um, and he was perfectly fine for the first 24 hours. But after okay. that, he started to talk less. Okay. And like he um, just stopped talking by the third day. Um, but when he came out, one of the first things he was excited about wasn't necessarily, um, well, p- meeting people, of course, you know, sure. after that time alone, you know, meeting people um, because he didn't even have Zoom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, <coughs> oh, excuse me. He didn't have Zoom or anything, but um, but when he said he met people, he had a realization of the way our experiences don't become full lived until we experience them with others. Oh, yeah. So I think that is one of the things that's kind of persisted in my mind with this topic of, like, if we don't talk about who we think God is with others, then how are we ever going to fully experience, you know, our relationship with God? Yeah. And I think that's one of the uh, points of this show mm-hmm. is to bring down God on three-dimensional plane, talk about him as if he were like right here sitting next to us mm-hmm. and be like, hey, this is what I was ob- observed or thought about. And then you're like, oh, I had a different idea. And we're like, hmm, let's bounce these ideas yeah. around. But if we yeah. don't have this relationship, Mm-hmm. of uh, going through our uh, fully living our experiences out, um, then I feel we can get stuck in a rut. Yes. <coughs> so I don't know if you have any comments yeah, no, on that. I think, I, think you're, I think you're right about that, that we can just get kind of stuck where we are, like with my picture of God being on a great big chair up in the clouds <laughs> um, and just never kind of moving beyond that and maybe talking about it could be a way of moving beyond that. I guess that um, I guess that I've almost um, 
I've almost given up on figuring out how to relate to God just because he is so intangible to me. Mm -hmm. And so then maybe I focus more on relating to other individuals and then, um, and then I'm grateful to God for that. Mm -hmm. Do you think we can, um, make God a little bit more tangible through individuals? Oh, I definitely do. Yeah. And like I said, I think that's a lot of the ways that I experience God. And you mentioned being in nature too. And I think like going and standing in front of the Grand Canyon and just being so awed by how big it is can also help me see how big God is Mm -hmm. or, um, being out in the in the prairies, um, one of the things I love about the prairies is that there aren't any trees to block the view. <laughs> <laughs> no trees and mountains to block the view. My friends used to tell me, Amy, the mountains are the view, but whatever. <laughs> they block the view. They block the sunset. Mm-hmm. Ah, but it just gives me a perspective of how big our earth is and then how big the universe is and then to think that god created that he's got to be so much bigger than that so he's got to be with what uh 7.9 billion people on the planet i've done the math if you've met every person for one second that'd be like 245 years and that's one second for every person that's a long time and so how is it possible that he knows everyone yeah, like, you know, he numbers the grains of sand and knows all the stars in the sky and cares more about individuals than about little sparrows. How can that be possible? <laughs> I wonder about that. Yeah. Um, kind of humbles you Oh, it's ter- and be like, yeah. I can't put God in a box. You know, right. it's something to help us understand. You know, yeah. like nature can be one of those things where we're like, we put God in a box on a shelf and we only bring him down when we need him. Yes. Um, or want something or whatever we do with them. And sometimes like going out in nature and just thinking about how big, how unvast knowledge that he has mm-hmm. is just crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy, crazy. Mm-hmm. And then I think another thing is, um, just having a practice of, say, praying before a meal, which can be very rote. You know, sometimes I just almost say the same things in my head as I'm praying, but it at least reminds me about God mm-hmm. once or twice or three times a day. And maybe pl- praying with my class um, once a week or a couple times a week can be the same kind of thing. Just remind me to stop and just pause a little bit in my day and and um, talk to God and maybe be quiet for a second. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, I want to say a little bit more about um, having a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned that it wasn't until I was in college that I committed my life to Jesus. And one of the things that started me on that path was a friend of mine, a teammate on the cross-country team, and she um, was a believer, mm-hmm. and she was, um, I think, trying to evangelize me. Mm-hmm. And um, she asked me what I thought Christianity was all about, and I 
gave her kind of what I had learned in my um, church classes, um, which was there was nothing wrong with what I said. But what she said is that all sounds good to me, but I think of Christianity as having a personal relationship with Christ. And that was a new concept to me. Mm -hmm. And um, I was thinking about that this morning. So I I do think that evangelicals sometimes use that language. Is that language that you're familiar with? I have heard that, yes. Um, And I... I'm I'm not sure how biblical that is, mm-hmm. um, and so I kind of asked that question this morning, and I, so I just did a quick Google search for biblical support for that idea, and there is a verse in John fifteen fifteen when Jesus is praying for his disciples and he calls us friend, so that suggests that he does want to have a friendship with us, so um, I just kind of wanted to lay that out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I have a conclusion about that, but that was something that I was sort of pondering as I was thinking about this podcast. Well, it's definitely something to ponder when thinking about this podcast. <laughs> That's why I have the podcast. <laughs> um, but it's it's interesting because we have been talking about on the show about maybe just using these words that we use in relationships to help us understand God. And so... Mm. Like, I remember talking about, let's try to envision God as, like, an actual friend. And, like, they're inviting us out all the time and we keep bailing, you know? Like, how would that make us feel if we were in that position of inviting and somebody kept bailing? Right. And I don't think it's heresy or, you know, anything like that. Think about those things. Um, But it definitely does put a limit on certain aspects about God, which I understand. But that's why we have the fourth dimension. We'll never fully understand God, right. um, but we can try to understand him in those ways. So with the whole being a friend with God, yeah, it it, uh, it always has, you know, rubbed me a certain way. It's like, it's like, I don't know. It's just like, can we be friends with God? I feel that's really weird, you know, but mm-hmm. you think about the people who are or have the one of the strongest relationships with God. So like David, um, Moses, Abraham and stuff like that, and how can we use their relationship and understand their relationship of what's documented that we know of, and how can we see that, and what kind of relationship is that? Can we categorize that relationship, or is this something entirely different? Um, So, yeah, that's all what this show is about. So just thinking about different relationships, doesn't even have to be human relationships, um, to help us understand who God is yeah, and the big question of why God loves too. Yeah. You know, like we can always say how God loves sometimes, but it's also hard to do that. Mm-hmm. But one of the bigger question is why God loves, you yeah. know, we do all these things, but yeah. he still chooses to love us. Right. So. And if he is all powerful and self-sufficient, he doesn't need us. Yeah. But. He clearly wants to have a relationship with us. Mm-hmm. And I, there's no other way to say that without using that word relationship, even though I find that word kind of squishy. <laughs> he wants to have a connection with us. He wants to have a connection. He wants to know us. And uh, he wants us to love him, which is another thing that I find difficult. Mm-hmm. How do I love somebody 
who I don't, who I can't even touch. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't see. And so f- for a long time, I thought, well, the way I love him is by obeying everything that he wants me to do. Mm-hmm. And so there are lots of commands in the Bible. And so I'll do my best to follow those commands. And then a pastor um, a few years ago said, that's not love. And I, and I think that's really right. I was really challenged by that and kind of thrown by that. Well, then how am I supposed to love God? But I think it's really true. Like I, if I think about my students and if I come into class and I ask my students to do something and they do that, I don't necessarily feel loved by that. Mm-hmm. I feel loved if they come up to me in the hallway and act like they're really happy to see me. Um, or if they, you know, write me a note of appreciation. Um, so how do I translate that into loving God? Um, I, I think spending time is important. Um, like you, <coughs> like, <coughs> like you suggested, um, not blowing God off. Mm-hmm. Like, um, if your friend keeps asking you to do something and you keep saying no. Is that really a relationship? Right. You know. Right. So, and um, are you familiar with the idea of love languages and people having different yes, love languages? I'm very well aware because I know personally what I like to receive as a love language uh-huh. and I know what I give as a love language. So. Uh-huh. So what would you say is your love language? Uh, receiving love uh-huh. for me is definitely quality time. Okay. Um, people can give me gifts and words of affirmation all the time, but if they're not spending quality time with me, I just don't feel like the same amount of love as like some other people. And I know that's not everybody's love language, and I understand that. And I think they're all beautiful. And my love language to others is acts of service, definitely acts of service when it comes to food. Okay. Like I love cooking for people. Um, and that also includes quality time with them. So it's kind of like I'm giving them a gift of love if they appreciate those things. So if I'm giving that gift, then I also receive the love of quality time with them. So I think that reciprocation, I didn't necessarily pick up on until actually right now thinking about it. Um, so, um, now I'm going to ask other people. You know, if I ever get on the topic of love language saying, so how do you love people and how does that actually maybe reciprocate back to you? Yeah. You know, so, but um, what about you? you Yeah. So my love language is um, quality time Mm -hmm. as well. I think that's my big one. Um, Words of affirmation are also important to Mm me. Um, I like hugs too. So physical touch, but I would say that the top one would be, um, quality time. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite things to do with my friends is get together over a meal and spend quality time with each other. So that should translate into how I try to love God. Um, I should apply that to my relationship with God. I should be willing and not just be willing, but want to spend time with him. And it's a little bit challenging to me because if I don't want to spend quality time with him, does that mean I don't love him? Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit challenging. Yeah. And then actually thinking about like 
why don't I want to spend time with him? Yeah. You know, is it because my image of him is a judge in the big clouds? So I don't want to see him because right. I feel like I'm going to be judged. Right. You know, so that is also a question of like, I feel like it brings it back to um, one of the basic things of like, what is our image of God? And why could that be a driving force of like, why we don't want a relationship necessarily with right. God? Or why we don't have a strong relationship yes. with um, God. So yeah. it's very important. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when we were talking about uh, blah, 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 loving God, mm-hmm. like how you uh, thought um, loving God looked with obeying um, his commands and stuff, um, I think that's one of the basic things that a lot of Christians uh, struggle over is following the commands and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, you know, Jesus does say, if you love me, then you're going to keep my commands. Mm-hmm. So, but I think that, I think it's kind of like the sequence that we get wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, I love God, and so I'm going to obey him. Not, I'm going to try to obey him so that I can love him. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yep. I'm not sure if it's a sequence or... Like, I think that the way we should respond to God is out of gratitude for what he's done. So he um, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, pay the price for all of my sins. And I'm just so grateful that he did that, that then all of the things that I do, all of the works that I do need to flow out of that gratefulness Mm -hmm. um, for what he did to me rather than me trying to do these things in order to sort of earn my um, earn my way into a relationship with him. Yeah, I, I remember listening to a sermon, um, and they brought up uh, parenting styles uh, because they were talking about um, seeing God as a father or like a parent or something, and they were bringing up, because they, they like to use relationships in the church too to help them understand who God is. One of them was as like a parent. And so they brought up three different parenting styles. It was a authoritarian, 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 and then, oh, I can't remember what the third one was. I don't remember. Yeah. But it was like um, a mix between the two. Yeah. So authoritarian is like um, you will receive love when you do these things. Okay. And then authoritarian. Authoritative. Authoritative. Oh, that's the mix. Sorry. Authoritative is the mix. So authoritarian is you will receive love if you do these things. And then I can't remember the name of the second one, but is you'll just receive love no matter what you do. Okay. Um, And then the third one is a mix between the two. Okay. Um, And so it was very interesting because I can see how people will see God as either authoritarian or like Mm -hmm. you, you do these things and I'll love you or like loosey goosey, like no matter what you do, um, I'm going to love you. Um, right. It doesn't matter uh, right. about anything. And I think there are some contexts to that. Um, and then the third one is just like, um, we have these rules. We're going to love you, um, not because you're following the rules, but like we still want you to have these rules because we want you to be a certain way, you know. And because the rules are good for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And so like um, – it was very interesting to talk about that because when we're talking about the order, you said, I'm going to love God by following his rules instead of I love God, thus I'm going to follow his rules. Yeah. You know, and so... It's a subtle difference. It is a very linguistic, subtle difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very important to understand, like, love languages and 
what ways we can love God, you know, um, and like look at Jesus's language. Like he said, um, if you love me, then you'll obey me. Yeah. Um, not saying obey me and then you'll love me. Um, yeah. And then he also talks about like love your neighbor as yourself. And yes, if whatever you do of these, you do also for me. Um, that yes. whole quote yes. from the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, not the Beatitudes. Maybe. Yeah. Um, Sermon on the Mount. Um, so, you know, these ideas of God using relationships. Yeah. As a way of saying you love me, you know, yeah. so I think Jesus wasn't so much trying to make himself tangible as he was trying to make what is already tangible ways to love him. Yeah. So it was very interesting. Yeah. And I think that's really important that that connection between loving God and loving your neighbor. Mm -hmm. What's the greatest command? The greatest command is loving God and the second is like it. Mm -hmm. Like almost in the same breath, almost like they're almost equal. Mm -hmm. So if you don't love your neighbor, and there's a song uh, that Dr. Samuel Zalanga sent out to all the faculty a few years ago. If you don't love God, then you don't love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Or no, it's the other way around. If you, uh, if you don't, you don't love you don't love God if you don't love your neighbor. Yep, and so. um, to kind of wrap that idea up is just like anything based after those two commandments. If we just looked at those two commandments and then prepared it, like looked at all the lega legality things of the Old Testament and like any other commandments that were given, they're all based on those two. Yep. Because if you love your neighbor, then you're going to love God, and if you love God and your neighbor, then you won't do these things. You won't commit adultery because you love your neighbor. Right. Um, you won't um, murder someone because you love your neighbor. You won't covet what they have because you love their neighbor. Right. And so like, um, I think that is also important to understand. Um, so we're kind of getting to the end of the uh, episode here. Yeah. And I just have a couple of more things to ask because this is all good stuff. All good stuff. Um, the last one is more of a question for you about what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Oh, yeah. Ooh. I know that was one of the last questions you asked uh, Christine <laughs> Osgood. She's like, yeah, thanks for saving that that doozy for the end, yeah. Seth. <laughs> you don't have to say a lot on it. Uh, you can just say, this is what I think, and that's it. So, uh I think that maybe part of what it means to be made in the image of God is having the ability to think. Um, we're not robots. Mm -hmm. um, so having the ability to think, having the ability to decide, and we having the ability to choose and, and the ability to choose the wrong thing gets us into trouble but it's part of i don't so god wouldn't choose the wrong thing but um he 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 gave us the ability to kind of be autonomous mm -hmm. um so i think he wants us to he wants our love for him to be real mm -hmm. um and so he went to great lengths to almost separate himself from us so that, um, and, and this, uh, this is one hypothesis, um, 
so that our when we turn to him, our love is real for him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Genuine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Genuine. So. so and not coerced. Yeah. I guess. Because he he doesn't need it. He wants it. Yeah. But he also doesn't want it to be like I created you and I created you to love me. You know, like even yeah. if we were to do that, if we knew somebody if we had the ability to create a very high-tech AI machine that looked humanoid or whatever else we wanted to, and it just loved us because it was in its programming, yeah, it would feel disingenuine. Right. So I think God is the same way. He created us, and he gave us free will because he wanted us to love him. Not that he needs it, but he um, wants us to love him because... Once we l- love him, um, he he always loves us. But once we love him, we can understand, like, how he loves us. Yeah. Like, genuinely, like, without, you know, just because I'm the creator, I have to love you. Yeah. You know, not saying that that's what it is, but I'm talking about the AI machine. Sure. You yeah. know, this relationship. Yes. So it's very interesting. interesting yeah, it is it. very interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then my last question okay. for you is if there is anything you have learned throughout your lifetime uh, about how it helped you to understand your relationship with God, what is it? What is it? Hmm. Well, I would just go back to relationships with other people and especially relationships where it's clear to me that people care about me mm-hmm. and demonstrate that to me in tangible ways. Um, that's what makes God real to me. So um, maybe in the context of a church or um, a small group of people who I'm doing life with um, who are also believers and I get to watch People live out their Christian faith, and that's what makes God real to me. That's what makes Christianity real to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, thank you. Now well, you're welcome. Everybody's going to have to go do that. <laughs> Love your neighbor. You've heard it before, and we'll say it again here, right? Love your neighbor. Yeah. Um, so thank you again, you're Dr. Welcome. Dykstra. Yeah, thanks for having for me For joining on. me, giving us so many fun facts about plants. Well, <laughs> yeah. Because we need them. We Plants do. are awesome. They are. They are. They give us life. You know. They do. We would not have, we would not be able to live if it were not for plants making all the food that we need. Well, food that we need, food that the animals need that yep. we possibly eat. Yep, you know, exactly. Because yep. even. They're the bottom of the food chain. Yep. Including in the ocean. Yes. So. Absolutely. Um, thank you again for You're joining welcome. us. Um, and uh, yeah. Okay. Have a great day. All right. You too.